0: Good morning. It's good to see all of you here. Welcome to Woven this Sunday morning. Start off with a story. I was probably about 13 years old. I was a new Christian and uh, I still had a life. I went to school. I had friends. I had a social grouping of friends. And I struggled. As a new Christian, I knew that I wanted to turn over a new leaf. I wanted to be a different, I wanted to be a good, ethical person. And at the same time, my group of friends from school constantly influenced me. I found that it was hard to resist the influence. And so I went to one of the older brothers in church. His name is, his name is still today Danny, Danny Kim, um, to whom I am very grateful. And um, I owe a tremendous debt to this old friend. Um, I've known Danny for that long. And I went to him. He was probably about five years older than me. Already in high school, he knew what it meant to be a Christian in the world. And I said, you know, big brother, I am having a problem with just being influenced by all the kids in school, doing things that I know I shouldn't do. How can I better resist their influence? How can I resist negative influence? And with a slight turn of thought, he said, Wayne, you know, it's not so much about resisting influence because if you're always fighting a defensive battle you're going to find it yourself hard-pressed to win. You also have to play offense. And so it's not so much about resisting influence as much as it's about being an influence, that you live your life and quite naturally, you're not so much influenced as you're already influencing others. And so he showed this dual perspective that on the one hand, you need a solid defense, but on the other hand, maybe the best defense is a good offense. Is that true at all in football? It is. The best defense is a good offense because if you're making points, well, they just can't catch up to you. And in a sense, I think I want to import that into our faith and work talk, into the series Sanctifying Monday to Friday. We started out this series laying a lot of the theological, biblical framework for a new perspective on what it means to be a Christian at work. Now we're going to kind of bring it to the more practical place How can I apply this? Is the best defense a good offense? And I don't mean being offensive. That's not what I mean. But being an influence at work, how can I resist influence? Both of these things, both of these questions, practically speaking, they're really tough. We have to speak to both. And that's what I'm going to speak about today in two halves. If you look in your bulletin on our notes, the first half, I'm going to talk about being a stranger in a strange land, how we resist influence. It's important to talk about this because in my almost 20 years of ministry in various um, capacities, I've heard things. I've heard the stories, some of them pretty tragic, about what happens when temptation comes around, whether it's at school or at work or even after work. The choices that we're pressured into making What does it mean for us to be strangers is the first half of today's talk. The second half is what does it mean for us to influence, to be ambassadors or to be diplomats. What does it mean for us as Christians not just to resist influence but also to give influence to our workplaces, to our marketplaces and to our fields. And so let's start off with that first heading from strangers to talk about what it means to resist the influence to stay as a stranger in a strange land and to recognize um, I think you talked you touched on that during the announcements Paul um, I'm trying to remember exactly what you said but um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so what does it mean for us as strangers to live with integrity and to maintain um, you know maintain our standards our integrity our character. And under this first heading from strangers I'm going to talk from two perspectives. One is Peter's perspective, the other is Paul. As we hear what they have to say about what it means to be a stranger in a strange land. Listen to the words of Peter, the apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 11. He says, "Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. I'm going to pause right there. Peter is addressing Jewish Christians in this letter. He's speaking to Jews and to call Jews aliens and strangers is a little bit ironic. In one sense, Jews are never really aliens or strangers. Jews are God's chosen people. Wherever they go, they have first-class citizenship. So to call a Jew an alien and stranger is kind of an ironic twist where he's saying, Yes, you are citizens of God's kingdom. And even though you're not Jewish, those of you, all of you Christians, you're citizens of a heavenly kingdom. But on earth, sometimes in the marketplace, sometimes at work, you're going to feel like a stranger and an alien. And you know what? As aliens and as strangers, he gives them a charge. And what does he say? Abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Abstain from fleshly lusts. Now, the word lusts can bring up uh, one particular sin in particular. I think, however, Peter is referring to the more broader sense of lust being unbridled appetites. Appetites, it could be for anything. It could be um, for a range of things. I think the heart and the essence of lust is when you just can't get enough. And you can't say no. And the thing is, sometimes we think, well, it's not hurting anybody. This is my own, you know, it's just, it's kind of my own little thing. It's not hurting anybody that maybe I indulge at every now and then. Um, it's a half-truth. It's a little white lie. And here's the thing, half-truths, little white lies, you know, these things that we think doesn't hurt anybody What Peter says is, it wages war against the soul. It wages war against the soul. One young man in my years of ministry confessed to me um, about a problem that he was having, um, an ongoing issue. And then at another point, he confessed to me that after work, he was pressured by his co-workers, to take that problem to the next level. He was peer pressured into going somewhere that he should not have gone. I knew that his problem was, in some senses, it was was a gateway drug. But when he took it to the next level, it was like he dipped into crack for the first time. And I was concerned for him. If we think that our gateway drugs... Whatever they may be, the fleshly lusts and the appetites are harmless. It's not hurting anybody. It's alone. It's secret. It's a half-truth. It's a little white lie. The thing is, I think Peter's right. These things wage war. They wage war against the soul. Friends, I hope that 2017 will be the year that you reach out, that you get help. I think lots of times people are scared to tell the pastor, you know, I have a problem or there's this thing or I kind of haven't been totally truthful about this and, you know, I don't want you to think I'm going to bite your head off. (laughs) We need, we all need help. We all need from time to time to nip something in the bud before it wages war against our soul and we lose the battle. Too often I have seen, I do not exaggerate in this, I have seen men lose the war. I have seen marriages lose the war. I have seen people become casualties to these things. And so Peter firmly, firmly speaks to them. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from the fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. These things I think we can take into application at work. And then he continues in verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. So amongst the non-Jews, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, this is interesting, Christians were misunderstood during the early church times, they were misunderstood as evildoers, as people that were doing strange things. People, They just didn't know who Christians were. They had a lot to prove, a lot to live up to. You know, friends, you have a lot to prove and a lot to live up to. The second you have that dumb little fish sticker on the back of your car, somebody cut me off the other day driving very erratically, very erratically, like um, tailgating me the whole way on I-10 and zoomed around me, and I was like, there's a little fish sticker on the back of that car. You're going to let people know they're watching. They're watching. And what Peter says is, the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, that they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. The point that I'm making here is that people, or I think the point that Peter is making, is that people are watching. If they know you're a Christian, well, then I just don't want to tell them I'm a Christian. That's one way to skin a cat, right? But the second that they know that you're a Christian, they're watching. They're watching. Bill Hybels is a pastor, pastor of a very prominent church up in Chicago. And one day he was in a meeting and he was so upset, he just wanted to lay into the person. And then he stopped because God was watching and people were watching. You don't have to be a pastor to realize that. You don't have to be in ministry. People are watching you at work. People are watching you as you drive. In fact, I'm going to tell you something funny. I was driving about three or four weeks ago um, in the, towards the downtown area. I was in the Heights area and um, in a city of six million people. And we're a church with kids, about 60 people, I saw one of you, I'm not going to say who, but I saw somebody from here driving and I passed him or her right by and I'm not going to say if you were picking your nose or if you were yelling or if you were road raging, I'm just going to say I saw you. What would it be like if you knew that God was watching and people were watching all the time? Friends, our charge and know that people are watching. They are, and they see. Our charge is twofold. From the words of Peter, it is first, abstinence. Abstain from those things which wage war against our soul. I'm a Christian. Yes, I'm a Christian. Do I really need to live up to it? Actually, yes, we do need to live up. We do need to grow. Let this be the year that we reach out for help, that you get help, that you find some help. Our charge is abstinence, first, and secondly, excellence. As Peter says, abstain from those things which wage war against our souls, but he also says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, because they're watching. And as they observe good deeds, you know, maybe the answer to my entire life I feel like the first half of my life, I lived like nobody was watching. I said, heck, I don't care. I can do whatever I want. And now I feel like I live the second half of my life, not just because I'm a pastor, really, not but because I, I, because, because I realize that as a Christian, my words go far. I, I live the second half of my life like everyone is watching. Not that I'm a people pleaser. That's not the point but I think that there is something important to that notion. God watches, people watch. How about Paul's perspective? So that was Peter. So I'm going to move to the perspective of Paul in the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 27 to 30. Listen to this. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so Paul and Peter, they lived at the same time. They were contemporaries. They didn't always get along. But they're both saying the same thing. What they're saying is, You are this new thing introduced to the world called a Christian. Nobody's seen you before. They think you're crazy. I kid you not, early Romans believed Christians were cannibals. Cannibals? All this talk about eating the body and the blood of Christ. They're like, what are they doing in those church gatherings? The world has no idea. And so Peter and Paul are both saying the same thing. Conduct yourself so that people who are watching, they're watching. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy so that when i hear so that when i so that whether i come and see you or remain absent whether i'm watching or not i will hear cuz things get to my ears right that's what he's saying i'll hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel so he's not just asking for ethical behavior but he's asking for ethical behavior together in community And then he continues, "...in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me." I am pretty sure that at least some of you here in this room know what it's like to feel conflict in your soul because of something at work. Conflict in the sense that perhaps your, your supervisor, your boss, the company itself is doing something unethical and in your mind clearly this is wrong. And yet at the same time you know that if you speak up you, you have fear of speaking up because you, you'll, you'll be blacklisted, you'll be labeled as a bleeding heart, you'll at worst be fired. As Christians, we face adversity, we face suffering, we face conflict, we face opposition. Nowhere, I think, do we face this more but out in the world, in the real world, Monday to Friday. And here is where Paul draws a connection. Listen to this. He draws a connection between that conflict and standing firm together. In other words, he's saying you're going to experience conflict at work in the world, but don't experience it alone. It makes no sense to be the one lone ranger in the office that says, I think we shouldn't be doing this, guys. This is kind of, you know, because you'll be labeled a dork. You'll be by yourself. You'll get into trouble. You'll get fired. Why suffer alone? Band together, standing firm in the gospel. There's a reason why last Sunday I wanted all of you to watch Reframe Lesson 8, to watch the video. I wanted you to see some of these things like the, 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 the Center for Faith and Work up in New York City where the different uh, professionals in their fields were gathering together in the room. Those of you, did you see that? And as Christians in the same uh, business, they were discussing the idols, the sins, the high places of their profession, and how to stand together and stand firm as Christians, and to not compromise, to have support. You know what I mean? To have support. I, 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 I love that idea. I love the notion. Maybe one day, we, if we have our own space, that we can be a church that can provide that support. Church is like an embassy. That's one of the the premises of the Reframe course. Sunday is an embassy where you gather together for support. But the reality is you might need a midweek embassy. You might need a midweek support group. And not just with church people, but also with people in your field and line of work, where in the midweek you can gather together and say, What does it mean for me to be a Christian? I need support. Because one person alone will be ignored. Two persons together are no longer alone. Three people united have to be reckoned with. Tell you a quick story. There were a couple of Germans who decided they wanted to climb the Matterhorn Mountain. And so what they did as novices... Instead of just going up that mountain and risking all, all by themselves, all alone, they got a couple of guides, some seasoned veterans, some people perhaps older that knew the way. Mentors, if you will, you can use that analogy. But anyway, guides. And so they started climbing, climbing the Matterhorn Mountain and strapped themselves in with the gear, climber, guide, climber, guide, climber, guide. It's a cohort model. It's when you're no longer alone. When you're together with people that have gone the way before, Christian businessmen, Christian business persons, Christians, scholars, students, mothers, etc. That know the road map and can support you because what happens is from time to time we slip. And it's difficult to say no. I know. It's hard. That young man that I told you about, he didn't want to make that choice. He didn't want to ruin his life, but it was hard to say no, and he went with it. Gateway drug becomes crack. And so, you're on the bottom of this string of guys and you're climbing and your crampons for some reason you miss or your foothold or the ice breaks and you 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 fall. We all fall. It's like the matrix, right? Everybody falls the first time. Everybody falls. Everybody falls. You Make the leap. Even Neo falls. You think you're the one. I'm never going to fall, man. But everybody falls. Everybody slips. But if you have support and you're tethered to somebody, you'll be caught and you won't hit rock bottom. You don't have to hit rock bottom. You don't have to bottom out. Somebody can catch you challenge, establish a community of support. As strangers in a very strange land, life can be very strange. Abstinence and excellence is our charge. But secondly, also you will need a community of support. Maybe woven can, maybe you can even just start that here. You know, if you're, if you're just hypothetically, if we had two people in the shoemaking business And band together and say, what would it be like if midweek we had a gathering at Starbucks there, you know, in Shoemaker's Central, downtown, wherever, and just brought others in and just had a support group? How neat would that be? And so this first part is talking about how to resist influence, how not to be influenced. The second half talks about how the best defense is actually a good offense, to be proactive to be ambassadors, ambassadors. So under ambassadors, I'm going to read a couple of verses from the New Testament and also the Old Testament. But listen to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Paul also says this. On the one hand, he talks about... What did he say? On the one hand, he talks about conducting yourself, about being a stranger in a strange land. On the other hand, he says, but also go and be an ambassador for the gospel. Let people know that you're a Christian. Let them know. What he says in verse 17 is, Therefore, if anybody's in Christ, you're a new creature. The old things pass away. Behold, a new thing comes or has come. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us this ministry of reconciliation. I love this. Do you know that I'm not the only minister in the room? I get to wear that white thing around my neck, but all of you have a yoke from Christ. And that yoke, that ministry, is a ministry of reconciliation. That's so reframe. That's so reframe. The notion being that a world is broken apart from God. Ever since Genesis, in the very beginning, we Christians are put on earth following the example of Christ to reconcile the broken world back to God. God work is not just to make you wealthy happy and healthy work is to reconcile this world back to god what you do is to reconcile the world back to god because as paul says he is committed to you a ministry of reconciliation what you do reconciles the world people the economy Whatever it is, back to God. I don't, I I, I need to do more research, but I can't tell you how many industries in this world have a Christian foundation hospitals, welfare. I mean, the list goes on and on. Many things started because of this notion a Christian saying, I'm going to use my vocation and my job to bring people back to God, to bring this sphere of life to bring creation back to God. And Paul continues in verse 19, namely, this is the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. He's committed to us this ministry of reconciliation. And here's the crux in verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors. Ambassadors. See yourself as a diplomat. See yourself as the one voice of sanity at work. Which is hard if your life is in disorder. But you are an ambassador as though God himself were making an appeal through us. And now Paul speaks to the world. We beg you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin. It was not his fault and yet he made him to be sin on our behalf. This is what you call taking the high road, taking the flack sometimes even. You know what a good leader is? Someone who goes 51% of the way. I don't mean exactly. A good leader is someone who will go more than halfway. A good leader is someone who will take a little bit more, not just what is their fair share, but will go a little further. That's what I heard at your graduation, Sarah. Sarah. From the keynote, the commencement speaker, she said something like that. A good leader is somebody, what did she say? A good leader is, Sarah was sleeping, a long graduation. There were like 10,000 students all getting ready to walk. That's what she said. It was so good. A good leader is someone um, who who will will go (laughs) above and beyond. Insert cliche here. It was good though. And so this new perspective on ambassadorship, listen to this. You know what it means to be an ambassador in your workplace? Paul Williams says this in the uh, Reframe video. I thought this was perfect, so I'm just quoting him verbatim, and you can fill in the blanks here. An ambassador is still a foreigner, still a foreigner, but is not resentful. Not resentful. An ambassador may miss home, but doesn't feel trapped. An ambassador has a sense of being sent somewhere and having a job to do an ambassador lives in a strange land on purpose and i know our congregation being a church of a lot of people are transplants being from other parts of the country and living here in houston we can say either i'm tr- i feel trapped here in houston with the humidity i feel like in the summer i just can't get cool and in the winter, I just can't stay dry. It's like, I take a shower, I put a shirt on, and I'm sweating again, and I can complain. And we can see ourselves as trapped. We can see ourselves as exiled in, in, Houston, in Houstonia. But at the same time, I think what, what, he's, what he's onto to here is we can also see a sense of purpose, that God has brought us here. We can recognize the purpose, we can recognize that we have a job to do. You know this is what the prophet Jeremiah is talking about in Jeremiah twenty nine four seven. I'm going to wrap this up. Listen to this. Look, you're in Babylon. I know you miss the 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 cedars, i.e. the cedars of Lebanon. You miss you miss the Middle East. You miss you miss uh, Jerusalem. You miss your native cooking. You miss home. You miss you know Solomon's colonnade. You miss The Mount, you miss Jerusalem, you miss home. But you're in Babylon. And in Babylon, you can be constantly ready to move back home to Jerusalem, or you can do this. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons even and give your daughters to husbands. I mean, he's talking generations here. That you may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. You know, I hate this place, man. I hate Babylon. There's mosquitoes. I can't open the window at night. I hate it. But, I'm in exile, and God sent me into exile. And so I'm going to pray for this place of exile, and I'm going to do my best, because I know when I pray for the welfare of this city, Babylon, God will also grant me welfare. The good that I see happening here, the good that I want to happen here, will also be my good. I think this is a very biblical message. It's God saying, Stop looking homeward or to Jerusalem or to this other place. Be present where you are, embrace it, and I will bless you here. I will bless you here. I've sent you there, even to exile. No one likes exile. But in the welfare of this place, you will have welfare. You will have welfare. In conclusion... Jesus says in John chapter 16, verse 33, you know, in the world you'll have trouble, but take courage. I beat it. I beat the game. It's doable. When you look at the end of the game and all the names show up, Jesus is the number one slot. I beat that game with one quarter. And I'm telling you this because you're going to have trouble. But know that you can have peace in me and that I'm with you always to the end of the age. So, friends, in conclusion, wherever you are, however you feel living life in exile, plant something, garden, bless the city. Give back, get to know a stranger, your neighbor, buy cowboy boots. Because as much as you bless this city, I can promise you this. Why? Because I believe it's biblical. You will be blessed back. If you can bless this city in your job, in your neighborhood, in your friendships, I can promise you, God will bless you back. That's not prosperity teaching. That's Jeremiah. When you pray for the welfare of this city and pray to the Lord on its behalf, in its welfare, in its welfare, you will have welfare. It will fare well for you. It will fare well. And so, let's close our eyes. And I want to invite you to respond in a prayer at this time, praying for your coworker, or for your boss or for the city or your neighborhood or your children's school, and pray for something here. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to be a blessing, to abstain and not get tainted. But to be the shoulder, perhaps, after work, somebody can cry on. To be the one, perhaps, that people will look to and say, well, he, he has integrity. Well, she, she empathizes well and understands. There's somebody here that I can talk to. God bless you guys. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this embassy, for this diplomatic embassy, this place where diplomats and ambassadors can come together and find the encouragement, the support, can find that even having slipped, that there is a, another Christian that is supporting us. Thank you for this place. I'm so grateful for this church. I'm so grateful, God, with a beautiful, wonderful community of support and strength. Week in, week out, every Sunday, we know consistently that we can be encouraged by you. So encourage these people, I pray. Encourage them. Give them hope. Give them a renewed sense of purpose. Replace burnout with a brilliant idea. Replace depression or just work weariness with renewed vigor and prayerfulness. Lord, I pray that you would empower everybody here that's afraid to go back to work tomorrow morning. God, give them exactly what they need, exactly what they need. Bless them now, I pray, in a powerful way. Give them, Lord, give them what they need. Bless them now, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a Woven Church Podcast. Woven Church is a multi-ethnic, missional church that meets in West Houston. We invite you to check us out on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. To find out more, visit us online at www.wovenchurch.org. That's www.wovenchurch.org.